another episode of Hive Mind, a pop culture podcast. My name is Erin and I am your host. I'm coming at you today with a very special surprise episode of my show um, to celebrate the release week of Taylor Swift's 10th studio album titled Midnight's, which dropped at midnight. I would say that since Swift announced this album at the VMAs back in August. We have been in a steady whirlwind of promotional materials and Easter eggs and theories from both her and the fans. People were getting lost in the sauce during this album rollout. Like, <laughs> the past week on TikTok has been unbelievable. Just the, the connections that people are trying to make from one thing to another. People acting like every time Taylor Swift blinks or breathes, it is a clue about something in her personal life. <laughs> um, you know, just everyone was getting really in the weeds with it. It's been a while since we saw this with a Swift album because on her last two releases, Folklore and Evermore, um, she released them like just out of nowhere. Uh, and, and... Here, it was very traditional, like we got, we got a lot of promotion leading up to last night. Um, and so now we're finally here and it seems like the adrenaline ran its course and we're finally sitting with this body of work um, and trying to make sense of it. And I've seen all sorts of takes today as I've been browsing the internet and talking to friends. Um, and I've been trying to spend some time alone with the record without getting influenced too much by other people and, and, and really thinking about, you know, where I think it stands in terms of her full discography, if it's worth listening to, what parts of it are, um, and what is it trying to say more largely about her narrative, uh, which is always something I'm trying to pull out in Taylor Swift work because I do find her records really thematic. And there have been a lot of themes that she's been like knuckling for the past, you know, uh, few years and things that just kind of keep coming up and submerging. And then she's like playing with it and putting it down again. Um, so I'm, I'm always interested in that with her. So let's get into it. I thought we could do a track by track reading today. I love doing that on my show. Um, and I think these tracks are all so varied that each one has a lot of meat, uh, and a lot to say. So, uh, you know, some of them I'll probably spend a little more time on than others because I have to say that my reading of this album is that it's spotty. Um, and this is, you know, this this tends to be how I feel about Taylor's work. 
I have said it in the past on my show back in episode four when I talked about folklore during its release, but I I can never stand firmly behind being a Swifty because she either knocks it out of the park or she delivers something that's lazy or corny or too on the nose or, I don't know, cluttered. Um, and th- there's just a lot of faults in her work to me. And, and it's interesting because she's super unlikable, but then she owns that she's unlikable. So you're like, what am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> um, and, and, you know, like I, I constantly feel in a weird position as the audience member. Like it always sort of feels like she's trying to guilt me into liking her, which is a strange dynamic considering she's the one with the power over me. Um, so it's, it's weird. Yeah. So you know, as as I go along, yes, there are definitely songs on here that are really strong and tight um, and will be, you know, uh, reoccurring on my playlist and shit. But there are others, actually, there are many that I find a little bit mid um, and, and sort of fall within the four out of 10, five out of 10 range, which isn't great. Um, so, so, you know, as I'm going through this, I definitely want to state just right out the gate, I think Taylor Swift is a really talented songwriter. I also think she's corny. (laughs) And I also think she sometimes lacks taste and maturity and gets too hung up on herself. And all of that interferes with how great of a writer she is. Also, Jack Antonoff, who is the sole producer of this project, just like in the past, in his work with Taylor and in his work with other pop and indie pop starlets like Claro, Lana Del Rey, Haim, King Princess, Lord, um, he is either creating something immaculate that has, you know, lush, like a lush instrumental, or he's creating something that feels phoned in. And I do think that Taylor and Jack are a match made in heaven in that way because they're both like, they're both so um, unpredictable. So speaking of Jack's production, let's start with the opening track, Lavender Haze. Much of it felt like it was done on a garage band drum machine. It was just very like mediocre. Um, I found Taylor whiny on it. Uh, I do think this track does a nice job ushering in some of the themes that are better wrestled with later, which um, one of them, a, a main one on this record is is Taylor Swift's desire not to get married. Um, and it does seem like this is like a financial decision um sort of her trying her best to protect her estate 
So she she intros that here with a line saying that all women are either seen as a one night or a wife. <laughs> and it, it it's strange because later on in the record, we see lots of songs of her just like crushing over the guy that she's dating, who we can infer and assume is Joe Alwyn, her very elusive boyfriend of six years. Um, so I, I don't know, like, I, I guess she's just talking about societally people see women as a one night or a wife. Um, but there's also a lot of like business talk in Lavender Haze that creeps up during the bridge. She talks about her, her relationship being poised to quote, go viral. Um, and she wants to get her relationship quote, off her desk, Um, these lines kind of sent me because, um, I just feel like there's constantly talk about Taylor Swift's relationships being PR or, you know, orchestrated in some way. And it was weird to see her kind of confront and acknowledge that those conversations have been had to some degree, whether with Joe or with someone else. There are a few places on this album where she is talking about Taylor Swift as like a character um, or like the caricature that the public sees of her rather than like authentically referring to her life. Um, so these these straight out the gate re- references to um, to how the internet perceives her or like like her, the business side of her her love um, is is very interesting. Like it keeps it at the forefront of our minds. So I mean I mean I don't mind that. I actually think that's the the meatier and more interesting part of the song. The chorus is is kind of dumb. It is referencing something that Taylor Swift apparently heard in the show Mad Men, which she says in the fifties people um, referred to like having a crush and being in the honeymoon stage of a relationship as being in a quote lavender haze um this sparked major major uproar um from queer taylor swift fans especially on tiktok um like a couple of weeks ago because obviously lavender is a historically queer color we have heard about you know, the lavender menace and lavender weddings. And even to this day, like young people are familiar with this because colleges have lavender graduations, you know, like that color holds so much significance. And the Taylor Swift fandom is pretty notoriously divided between people who read her as straight and people who read her as bisexual. And, um, you know, I, that was just like a big slap in the face to that community. I really do think that this, I'm saying that community as if I'm not like a fucking gayler. Um, <laughs> I have had so much character development since I last talked about Taylor Swift on this podcast. Like on episode four, when I was reviewing Folklore, I was like, I guess if you close one eye and squint you could see that Taylor could possibly have had a crush on a girl in the past. And recently I submitted a like 15 page paper to an academic journal about how Taylor Swift's music is gay. (laughs) Um, This album is, is 
is not. Like the majority of it is not. Um, I will tell you what is. The second track, Maroon. Maroon feels like a combination of Dress from Reputation and Cornelia Street from Lover. Uh, this album in general is a little bit of like a hybrid between Reputation and Lover. Maroon definitely seems to be referencing the same relationship just because uh, the, the like actual specific details that she drops are present on all three. Um, a lot of people have speculated in the past that Dress and Cornelia Street are about Taylor's supposed relationship with model Carly Kloss. Um, so, you know, Maroon definitely broaches that topic again. Maroon is just like, it's about like kissing a girl. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. It's a colorful song. I don't really think it's anything special. And once again, it's like not something I would listen to again. Um, but I have to say, just like in Lavender Haze, there are lyrics that are interesting to me here. Like in The Bridge, she is referring to being in a relationship with her as a, a quote, real fucking legacy uh, and and this is all like thematically connected to me, you know, parts of her love life are so commodified and so in print and everybody's talking about them and speculating on them that, you know, like even something like the shit that might have went down with Carly Kloss, it's like it, that could have literally just been like some tension between two friends like some sexual tension between two friends and it is so a part of taylor swift lore so much so that it's spreading beyond the queer fan base and like kind of being injected into dominant conversations about taylor swift like i would say nine out of ten taylor swift fans are aware of the concept of Gaylor <laughs> and like, uh, you know, this, this Carly Kloss situation. So, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, that's legacy. This, this woman is so known and everything she does makes an imprint on the world. And like just being tethered to her, even for one night makes you part of her story. The next track is Taylor's first single off Midnight's. She released a music video to this one kind of concurrently with the album last night. Um, this song is called Anti-Hero. My daughter-in-law kills me for the money. She thinks I left them in the will. The family gathers around and reads it and then someone screams out. She's laughing up at us. I have to say, I think that Taylor finally picked the right first single. 
This has been like a notorious problem of hers. She fumbled the bag big on Evermore when she put Willow as the lead single, which is like such a thumbs down, such a such a drowsy song. Uh, obviously, when Lover came out and she picked the song Me featuring that guy Brendan Urie from Panic at the Disco. I mean, that song is trash and like even the hard the most hardcore fans will admit that. Um, the reputation lead single was Look What You Made Me Do, which is an absolute mess of a song. I think this goes back to what I was saying about Taylor Swift truly having bad taste. Like, she'll write something so good and not even realize it's good. Like, Evermore is absolute chef's kiss and she pays it dust. She never talks about it. Like, I don't even think she realizes that it's good. Like, I think she thinks of it as a B-sides pandemic album. And I'm like, Girl, like this is your best work. This is this is it. This is like the album. Why aren't you doing anything with it? Like, why aren't you playing on Jimmy Fallon and James Corden and The Today Show? And why aren't you on the Grammys and the American Music Awards? And like, why aren't you singing Evermore songs everywhere? Why aren't you putting out a whole visual album of Evermore? You know, um, <laughs> it doesn't make sense. She, she just has like terrible judgment. Um, but anti-hero, I, I was happy to see that this is what she went with because I do think that it is strong, it is catchy, it is full, but it's also like, um, I feel like it's saying something uh, and it fits really well into the conceptual arc of the record and of what we know about Taylor in general. Anti-hero is a song about self-loathing. Um, it is Taylor Swift reckoning with realizing that she exhausts people kind of kind of a la liability by lord this track has one of the most talked about lyrics um which is i believe it's the second verse she sings i i feel like everybody is a sexy baby and i'm a monster on the hill uh and and people have been very publicly cringing at that line. People being like, how did the same person who wrote XYZ lyric also write sexy baby? What does that mean? I'm like, you guys lack critical thinking skills. Let's unpack sexy baby for a second. Taylor is in her mid thirties, right? She is tall and gangly. Um, yes, in a lot of ways, she meets like traditional beauty standards, but Throughout the course of her career, traditional beauty standards have changed a lot. And there are different types of like beauty being valued, you know, in mainstream pop. When she sings, I feel like everybody is a sexy baby. Like I'm thinking of Olivia Rodrigo. I'm thinking of Madison Beer. I'm thinking of, you know, Tate McRae. It's a very specific aesthetic um, that is incredibly seductive, but is also youthful. And like, I I just feel like that's completely inaccessible to Taylor. Like she'll never fit in that box and that mold. Um, So I think on one hand, this is like directly calling attention to how she is kind of now finding herself outside of what's hot in terms of like sex appeal and pop. But Also, like, the I'm a monster on a hill part. Like, I feel like you can relate to this if if you've ever felt, like, too big or too much or too too masculine or too 
strong or too in your face. Like Taylor Swift is cruel and cutting. She is not a sexy baby in any type of way. She's not like a smooth brained, go with the flow type bitch. She is constantly hard to swallow. And she knows that. Uh, you know, this this song is just full of self-deprecation and uh, just just like punishment of the self. It's very sad, even though it, it is so catchy and is kind of an earworm. Like on the last verse, she's talking about being in her coffin at the funeral and like her daughter-in-law is only concerned with whether or not she's included on the will. Um, you know, so once again, we see these fears about having children, being married, money, finances, her estate. She's so concerned with some of that stuff. Um, and I, I guess it's just because like, if you've been famous since you were 15 and like a billionaire, uh, you know, I'm sure you're just surrounded by a lot of people that are you know, only fucking with you to get a coin. Um, So there's a lot of just paranoia around that. It is one of those things where it's hard to feel bad for her though, because at the end of the day, the the core of that story, the root of that story is that you're a billionaire and you have like just a type of comfort that none of us lay people could ever imagine. So that's a hard thing about reckoning with a lot of this music because she does a great job at making you feel guilty. And then you're like, why the fuck am I feeling guilty? You know, like you're the one destroying the environment with your private jet. <laughs> um, anyway, one of my favorite features of Antihero that I have not heard very many people talk about is she uh, does this like little snake sound uh, toward the end. I think it's at the end of the bridge. Um, and I just thought that was such a creative little wink to the way that the public used to perceive her without being too like in your face with it like back in the reputation era when she would actually like include snake imagery um like on the tour and stuff um she just does a little like she holds out the end of a word and she's like i don't even know if that's what it means but like that's how i took it and i thought it was cool so shout out to that um okay the next track track four is called snow on the beach featuring lana del rey feature here is so extremely minimal uh it was a real underuse of a guest artist in my opinion i don't know if this was just a cash grab like i like we barely hear her she's like kind of a whisper in the back lana del rey fans are like they come out strong they come out in droves so i kind of feel like she was roped in here just to get a couple more listeners on board um i'm sure they feel disappointed like her her handprints aren't even on this song it doesn't even sound like a lana song um actually i have to say snow on the beach is my least favorite track out of all of them i think it's repetitive it sounds unfinished kind of there's a lot of like kid-like 
similes. Uh, it's just very juvenile to me. It's a big skip. Don't even waste your time. The next song is called You're On Your Own Kid. have been having trouble figuring out what this song is actually about. It's really disjointed and lacks focus, in my opinion. There's a mention of Taylor Swift's eating disorder, which she has disclosed in recent years. Um, there's also a mention of a blood-soaked dress, which has been feeding rumors that Swift recently had a miscarriage. Um, that's all speculation, of course. I don't know. The The bridge builds really, really nicely. It's a little bit reminiscent of Champagne Problems in that, I don't know, it almost feels like you're driving through a tunnel or something and you're getting closer and closer and closer to your destination and the anticipation to come out to the light is like becoming more and more real. Uh, so I love that. I love I love the sound of this song. Just the lyrics are are a little bit... I don't know. They, they, they're not finding a lane. They're taking them all up. Um, this is where we hear real, real melodrama reference. This song is like hard feelings core. Um, it has that scraping sound that's present in the bridge of hard feelings, which is probably my favorite lord song or it's up there so i was really excited to hear that i almost think jack used like the same sample or instrumental or whatever that was and just did a plug and play here it worked well but i think it could hit even harder if it had some connection to the lyrical content like the way it's used in hard feelings is during the rush of this romance that lord was having like while it's kind of crashing and burning, but you're too caught up in the passion to notice. And this sound just really exemplifies that without being like corny and saying it. The problem with Taylor Swift is like, she's corny and says it and then puts the sound. Like you only need one or the other, you know? Um, cool. So the next song is Midnight Rain. Slow motion, love potion, jumping off things in the ocean. Broke his heart cause he was nice. He was sunshine, I was midnight. He wanted a comfortable, I wanted that pain. He wanted a bird, I was making my own name. Chasing the fame, he stayed the same. All of me changed like me. It came like a postcard. Picture perfect, shiny family. We have the first use of pitched down vocals on the record. This to me read as very Frank Ocean, Tyler the Creator, FKA Twigs. This is very like alternative R&B, um, which is a sound and a vibe that I haven't heard Taylor play with that much. Like she's sort of poking her nose in this environment where she's like a little bit of an outsider. Uh, I thought it worked. It was actually kind of cool. Um, the song in general is is very fuzzy and 
she sings in like a warbling tone. Uh, it has a very sadistic chorus where she's talking about how like she never wants to settle down and be a wife or have a family because she quote likes the pain. That got an eye roll from me, especially after she has uh, talked so much about how the real reason she doesn't want to get married is because of financial reasons. Like, it's almost like she's like overcorrecting and she's like, no, no, it's actually just because I'm too passionate. Uh, And I don't know, it comes across kind of fake. In general, Midnight Rain, I kind of think overuses similes and overuses a lot of this like sentimental language. Something really great that I learned once in a poetry workshop in college was like, if you're using a simile, make sure that the thing you're pointing to also has some relevance to what you're trying to say. So like if I said, we huddled together like penguins, the audience's mind is going to immediately go to a penguin, right? Like you picture a penguin in your mind. You're not picturing people huddling together just because that's how our brains work. Like we hear a word, we think the word. Um, so the the most effective way to use a simile would be like we huddled together like penguins uh, and then a penguin is relevant in the larger poem because it's really a poem about the, you know, like isolation of winter or something. Like penguin works within the toolbox of that poem. That was a really random example, but you know what I mean? Um, You wouldn't want to say we huddled together like penguins, but a penguin has no relevance to anything you're saying and can't like connect back and bring your reader back because then you lose the reader or here Taylor loses the listener to the image of the penguin and you kind of leave them there. Um, I feel like she does that numerous times with similes on Night Rain and they just come across a little cheap to me. Like I know she can write. I know she can create similes. She doesn't have to be a show off, you know. The next song is called Question. Like some explanations. Can I ask you a question? Did you ever have someone kiss you in a crowded room? And every single one of your friends was making fun of you. But 15 seconds later, they were clapping too. Then what did you do? Did you leave a house in the middle of the night? Did you wish you'd put up more of a fight? When she said I think this one is another one that feels a little juvenile and also crowded. These are the same problems that keep coming up for Taylor here. Um, I hope she kind of course corrects in the future so we don't have these problems last forever. Um, I would say, though, that Question is another one that definitely points towards some of the Carly Claus stuff, um, because the whole, like, kiss you in a crowded room thing that the chorus is all about, that is, like, such a direct reference to the infamous moment where Taylor Swift and Carly Claus kissed at a 1975 concert in, like, 2014. (laughs) Just the, the whole, like, the whole picture that's painted there talking about, like, she says, you're not sure, I don't know, like, we're living in the gray area or something like that. Like, like all of that is just, it's very queer. Uh, it's not that good, but it is queer. All right, the next track is Vigilante Shit. Draw the cat eyes sharp enough to kill a man. 
did some bad things, but I'm the worst of them. Sometimes I wonder which one will be your last lie. They say looks can kill, and I might try. I don't dress for women. I don't dress for men. Lately, I've been dressing for revenge. I don't start it, but I can tell you how it ends. This is one of the ones that I was most nervous about going in, just because the title is so ambitious and just, I don't know, playful to the point where it could either be very, very cool or very, very embarrassing. And it's a little bit of both. Uh, I... I think that Taylor is really playing with her petty side here. She once again brings up the drama with Scooter Braun, who I guess owns her masters of her albums. She's so concerned with financial dilemmas and dramas here. That's like yawn to me, you know? I don't want to hear Scooter Braun's name. I don't care about Scooter Braun cheating on his wife. I don't care about Scooter Braun doing cocaine. She thinks I do, but I don't. Um, and she keeps thinking I do. <laughs> um, this song sounds totally Billie Eilish-like. It's very much in her wheelhouse. I actually think Billie could sell it better than Taylor because when Taylor says some of these lines, it, it comes across so girl boss, you know, so, so millennial. <laughs> And uh, it's just a little bit cringeworthy. I do think there's something interesting here about like kind of uh, refusing to perform for the male or the female gaze and just like being obsessed with yourself. Uh, I think that that's a, that's a new angle to look at Taylor through. Um, just sort of being like asexual, n not in like a sexual orientation label standpoint but almost like sh she's always so much more empowered than whoever she fucks that like the dynamics of her relationships will always be skewed in her favor regardless of how she wants to put it and how much she wants to persecute herself um so i don't know like that's that's a little different i i do kind of like that she's playing with that here uh, it is very funny that she says she doesn't dress for women. She doesn't dress for men. She dresses for revenge. I saw such a hysterical tweet where it was like four images of Taylor Swift wearing like grandma Oxford flats with that lyric. <laughs> the two things were just so funny side by side. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I do think that this song is a little bit hung up on this good guy versus bad guy binary that Taylor Swift played a lot with on Reputation and was one of the reasons I didn't love that album and felt like it fell flat. Uh, I do find it to be lacking nuance. Um, just because you put on eyeliner doesn't mean you're a bad girl. <laughs> just because you do a bad thing doesn't mean you're a bad girl. Uh, and, and all of that feels very babyish to me, uh, to a point where it's like, oh, Taylor, girl, you know, <laughs> it's like not really that enjoyable. Um, I do think the production on here is fire. Uh, and if somebody were to sell it with more gravitas, I would probably enjoy it. Okay, 
Um, the next album track is called Bejeweled. And when I meet the band, they ask, do you have a man? I can still say I don't remember. Familiarity breeds contempt, so put me in the basement when I want the penthouse of your heart. Diamonds in my eyes. I polish up real, I polish up real nice. this was a fun one i feel like it kind of sounded like video game music there's something very very sparkly in the instrumental uh you can almost hear like somebody running their hands across a keyboard piano it so, sort of felt a little brit pop to me i was thinking of robin a lot when i was listening to this one also maybe like the spice girls uh it it definitely feels in that realm um it's it's kind of like a I Still Got It song, which I guess works in the larger narrative of the album because she's finally coming to her senses and realizing she doesn't have to be all woe is me all the time because she still has a lot of success at her hands and a lot of people who really care about what she has to say. So um, just because she's not the youngest person doesn't mean she's not irrelevant. Um, And I like that she stands proudly in that here and doesn't... uh, put us in an awkward position as the audience like we're we're allowed to just hang back and be like yeah girl you are like bejeweled you make the whole room shimmer uh the next track is called labyrinth say I loved this one this one is gentle and airy it is very spacey like not spacious spacey like almost like your head is full of air you know uh and and that's a really blissful feeling it it lets you sort of detach from reality a bit um once again this is one that I felt could be in conversation with hard feelings from melodrama I definitely think Hard Feelings was on the wall in the studio when Jack and Taylor were working on this project. It's just like, that was the blueprint. That's what so much of this album grew out of. I can totally tell. Um, One thing I would love about Labyrinth that I think is missing, like this song is like a nine out of 10 for me. It's really, really good. I think this song could be perfect, like competing with some of Swift's best work if she let it, absolutely combust and go off the rails at the end. It's a little bit too steady. I don't mind being put in a trance for a bit, but I eventually want the trance to disintegrate and just to fall weightless from the moon or wherever I am. (laughs) Um, I think that would be a fantastic feature on this. I would love if she did something like that live, perhaps, um, once this Midnight's tour inevitably rolls around. All of these songs have a lot of room to grow, in my opinion. Like, none of them are bad. Except for Snow on the Beach. I think that one's bad. The rest of them are almost there. They're so close, and they're missing, like, 
a little zhuzh at the end. Uh, and to me, just breaking out of that, you know, uh, really sturdy, steady pace and letting loose at the end of Labyrinth would have been would have been really sick. All right, the next song is called Karma. I am making a strong prediction now that Karma will be the next single and we're potentially getting a Karma music video later in the week. Um, hit my line if I'm correct and, and give me props. And I keep my side of the street clean You wouldn't know what I mean Karma is my boyfriend Karma is a god Karma is the breeze in my hair on the weekend Karma's a relaxing thought Aren't you envious that for you it's not Sweet like honey Karma is a cat Purring in my lap cause it loves me Karma is already taking off on TikTok. People love this chorus. It is so Instagrammable. Like the lyrics are really Instagrammable, especially the the first line of the hook, which says, Karma is my boyfriend. The girls are eating that up. Uh, and I don't blame them. That's a great lyric. It's like stupid, but it's good. Um, it's very like recession pop, early 2010s. Like it's kind of... Karma is My Boyfriend is a little bit Kesha, and I love that. Um, this song kind of reminds me of credits music or montage music. I definitely can see it in a teen movie. Like, I recently watched the Netflix movie Do Revenge, which has Maya Hawke and Camila Mendez. I don't recommend it. It was like, I don't know, it fell off halfway through, but... Uh, I could totally see this song in it. Like, I almost wish this song came out a couple months earlier so it could be in that movie. Um, it also sounds a lot like, don't you forget about me. I don't know why. I haven't heard anybody else say that, so that may be me hearing things. But I'm like, why is this the same song? Like, the the um, the pace. It's like a walking song. I was thinking a lot about that girl from TikTok that walks on the treadmill to pop songs and, like, gives you a playlist to do in a certain order as you raise the inclination. Like, I know she's going to love karma. Can't you just imagine walking to karma? Um, it is once again, kind of like a cute, but cruel girl boss song. There's a lot of twinkling sounds. There's a lot of sounds of like coins and money. Like there's a lot of cha-ching sounds, um, which is a little on the nose, but it kind of, I don't know, it creates some atmosphere. I don't mind it. A lot of replay value. Um, and I found myself knowing the chorus really fast, which I think is a great sign because that means it could be a radio-friendly hit. Uh, something weird that happens here is um, late in the song, she talks about how karma is sweet like justice. This album is so, so apolitical. She doesn't engage in like any world issues here um, at all. Uh, it's funny because she made her entire brand like being an ally, being like a white feminist activist during the lover era. And she slowly like left all of that behind. So even just saying the word justice feels out of character and it feels shoehorned in. It kind of reminds me a lot of the Justin Bieber album, Justice, which is just about how much he loves his wife. But there are random interludes of Martin Luther King talking. Truly one of the most ludicrous things to happen in music in recent years that 
And Justin Bieber, he gets a lot of flack. I, I love Justin Bieber. I think he has a fantastic voice. He has been good since he's a little kid. He's put out, you know, some bangers. I don't know how we let him get away with that. <laughs> I tell people that. I'm like, yo, do you know that Justin Bieber has an album called Justice where every interlude is Martin Luther King delivering the I Have a Dream speech? And people don't know about that. How do you not know? That should be like... That should, should have been a bigger deal than Ariana Grande licking the donut. <laughs> the second to last song is called Sweet Nothing. I spy with my little tired eye, tiny as a firefly, a pebble that we picked up last July. Down deep inside your pocket, we almost forgot it. Does it ever miss Wicklow sometimes? I listened to it numerous times today, and I'm sitting here staring at the title, and like literally nothing is coming to mind. Um, I wrote down Invisible String Vibes, <laughs> which is not one of my favorite songs on folklore. I think it's a little kitschy. Um, this one also, if I'm remembering correctly, uses like a MIDI keyboard and it's kind of plucky, uh, very much a love song. Anything that's like overly concerned with Joe Alwyn, I'm kind of like, okay, we get it. <laughs> Cause it's never like, there's no stakes. You know what I mean? Like I, I like a love song with stakes and with, uh, her relationship with Joe and when that's really what she's getting into, I'm kind of like, all right, good for you. You know, like there's not, damn, I'm being sassy on this episode. <laughs> you guys are getting a different side of me. In the past, I've been like talking about albums I really love and I'm like, it's so special. I got chills on every inch of my body. And here I'm like, all right, we get it. <laughs> um, which brings us to the final track, Mastermind. This is a really, really interesting one. You see, all the wisest women had to do it this way. Cause we were born to be the pawn in every lover's game. If you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Strategy sets the scene for the tale. I'm the wind in our free flowing sails, and the liquor in our cocktails. Is one of my favorites in her discography where she says no one wanted to play with me as a little kid that puts so much of Taylor Swift in context for me um, this is a song that it's low-key sad it's about her being like manipulative and revealing too much about her life so that you'll pity her and being so calculated uh, it's almost like a villain origin story song. Very, very cold and detached and lacking empathy. Um, but all of this kind of stems from this one confession that she makes that like no one liked her as a little kid. No one wanted to play with her. I love the word play there. Because um, I know for Taylor Swift, like playing is her career. It's her identity. She is... She is her imagination. She is the world that she creates. So as a kid, for nobody to honor that and see that, that must have been so traumatic. And we see 
like remnants of that in all of her other songs since day one, in so much of her public persona, in so much of the feud she's gotten into. Like she is very calculative because she was not like fully embraced for who she was as a child. And um, it's a weird note to end the album on because it's really somber. It's a good song, but it's just like a downer. And then you're like, oh, okay, <laughs> like that's it. Like it just ends. Um, but I do like it. Uh, but but the interesting thing is that Midnight's doesn't stop there. At 3 a.m. this morning, I was not up, I was sleeping. She revealed that there are eight more tracks, Midnight's 3 a.m. edition. These are kind of like bonus tracks, I guess, or B-sides, but um, some fans have liked them even more than the like regular tracks, the album tracks. Um, I feel like it's a little bit hit or miss. There are ones that are extremely forgettable, like The Great War, um, which I thought was kind of boring. Uses a lot of military metaphors, which reminded me of Epiphany on Folklore, which I also didn't like. Um, there's the song Bigger Than the Whole Sky, which randomly reminded me of Blue by Beyonce, a song that I probably have not listened to in years. Uh, it's one from Self-Titled, like one of the ballads on Self-Titled that got really overshadowed by like, you know, Flawless and Partition and stuff like that. Uh, this song and that song both feel really wide. They both use like this organ and guitar combination. They are both also a little bit sluggish. Um, that's the downside to Bigger Than the Whole Sky. It's very beautiful. And actually Taylor sounds nice on here. I haven't talked much about her vocals, but her vocals are growing. They're becoming a little bit more robust as time goes on. A um, couple good lines like, everything I touch becomes sick with sadness. Oof, very mellow though. Um, yeah, I, li I like it. I do think it drags a bit. Uh, total 180 to the next song on the bonus edition um, called Paris. This song reminded me of something that would be played in a perfume commercial. Uh, it's very oriented in fantasy. It's boppy. It's light. It's bubblegum. I don't hate it. I think it would actually sound really nice on a playlist with Bejeweled. I think it's fun, but ultimately meaningless. But I love one of the lines from the bridge. Um, the bridge is like her confessing all her feelings to this person. And she says, I want to brainwash you. I love that. I just love when people acknowledge that having a crush makes us crazy. It makes me feel less alone. The next one, High Infidelity, is another one I can barely remember after a couple of listens. It didn't stir me at all. Uh, the following track is called Glitch. I was excited about this one because I just love the word glitch. I've always tried to use it in things. I think, number one, it sounds great coming off the tip of your tongue. It includes all my favorite letters and sounds. <laughs> um, but I love what a glitch stands for. And I think it can mean a lot in terms of uh, like womanhood and love and feelings. Like we're constantly glitching out. Um, so I liked this. This was, was kind of cool. It got woozy at the end. 
Uh, and it has a good chorus. Uh, so there's a lot going on here. I do think they could even amp up the production even further. I think Glitch would make an excellent hyperpop song if Taylor ever wanted to dip her toe into that world. Like, what would Taylor sound with A.G. Cook on production? You know, what would Taylor sound in like a Sophie-esque world? Would be interesting for me to see. I don't know if I'm just getting that because of the title. Like, you think Glitch, you think hyperpop. But I don't know. I'd, I'd be interested. I'd be down. Okay. Which brings us to the best uh, 3 a.m. track, which is called Would've, Could've, Should've. Terrible title, fantastic song. I don't even know where to begin here. I feel like I need to give like a dissertation about this song someday. Why was it pushed to the 3 a.m. version? I will never know. It reminds me a lot of Ethel Kane. It also reminds me a lot of Take Me to Church by Hosier. Hosier. Oh my God, someone's going to kill me for pronouncing his name wrong. Um, I'm thinking of five different friends I have that will now kill me. <laughs> um, yeah, lots of like religious iconography and references here. You know, danced with the devil. You're a crisis of my faith. I'm on my knees. Uh, I love reading this song from a queer standpoint. You can if you want. You don't have to. I'm just saying it would work really well. Uh, I do know that a lot of people are finding a tie between this one and Dear John from Speak Now, which Taylor wrote about her teenage relationship with much older John Mayer. This is an anti-John Mayer hate podcast. Um, John Mayer hate free zone because I love the album Room for Squares. I probably listen to it almost every night. It's like my go-to falling asleep album. I think John Mayer has such a soothing voice. He's like one of my favorite male vocalists. But yeah, this is a song that's speaking of a partner who, quote, took away her girlhood back when she was younger, um, which obviously might be referring to virginity. Um, it's a It's a really wide and interesting song. Ooh, I just got my Be Real notification. Should I take my Be Real live on the pod? Wow, this is so, this is so fun. Okay. We have officially been real together. This is a big step in our relationship, hive mind. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, so would've, could've, should've, I have to, I have to recommend that one. It has great momentum. It, it really is emotive and it makes you feel uh, in all the ways that a Taylor Swift song should when she's at her best. Um, so I'm going to co-sign that one pretty strong. Uh, and then the final track on the 3 a.m. edition is called Dear Reader. I immediately thought of Jane Eyre. I don't think there are any actual references to Jane Eyre in the song, but that that line, I mean, that's an iconic Jane, Jane Eyre line. Um, and I know Taylor loves her literary classics um, and referencing those and borrowing from those. I think I'm going to have to stew on that a little bit because I think it may have meaning that people haven't delved into yet. Uh, yeah, this is good. It's just, once again, a little bit forgettable. There are a lot of references to drinking on this song and across the whole album. It's so funny because for years, Taylor wouldn't curse and wouldn't mention drinking. And now every song's like, I drank five glasses of wine and said, fuck you. <laughs> um, and, you know, 
Good for her. Good for her. So let's wrap this up because it's been a long day for all of us. What is the takeaway here? Taylor is trying to communicate something yet again about how how scary it is to be commodified and how hard it is to not have a true firm sense of self and be constantly pivoting to whatever other people want from you. Uh, it's another album about being a people pleaser. It's another album about being a former gifted kid. It's another album about having too much money and not having anything to do with it. It's another album about being uh, a little bit gay for Carly Kloss back in the day. Um, all of these things are nothing new. Um, I think that what made Midnight special and unique was the hype that was built during the rollout the 70s aesthetics in her dress, in the merch, in the promotional materials. Uh, all of that is very unique and definitely puts Midnight in its own singular era. But this album is classic Taylor Swift. It's spotty and she has to figure out what to do with that. She has to figure out how to edit and how to take charge of her music before sending it away. Um, I think people gobble up whatever she puts out regardless of the quality. So she almost has learned not to worry about it. But if she did, I mean, she would be unstoppable. She's such a force and she lets her like pride kind of get in the way. Uh, you know, like she needs to learn to kill her darlings. All right. Thank you so much for hanging with me today. I love talking to you. I miss you guys. Um, I will be back soon. I'm sure I'm thinking probably December uh, during Spotify wrapped. I love to kind of talk about the year in music. So I'll probably see you then. In the meantime, make sure to follow me on Instagram at HiveMindPopCulture and on Twitter at HiveMindThePod. I am constantly talking about all of this stuff in the interim and would love to have you join the conversation on there. We have a lot of fun. Thank you so much and I'll catch you soon. Bye. My side of the street clean You wouldn't know what I mean If karma is my boyfriend Karma is a god Karma is the breeze in my hair on the weekend Karma's a relaxing thought Aren't you envious that for you it's not? Sweet like honey Karma is a cat Purring in my lap cause it loves me Flexing like a goddamn Like a bounty hunter, karma's gonna trap.